Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojola. This week, who will be Seattle's next police chief? Some familiar names are on the short list. The Biden administration responds to critics on the Afghanistan withdrawal. Are voting rights dead in the U.S. Senate? And a Northwest town names a bridge after America's favorite evangelical. But first, well, the election is just a couple of months away. We already know who is going to be in the general for Seattle mayor, Seattle city council, and Seattle city attorney. Those are three of the hottest races and probably the three that most people are paying attention to. But what do people think of these races? And uh, Matt Markovich, who joins us uh, quite frequently on the podcast, joins me now. And uh, Matt, we also have on the line with us an expert in public opinion. That is uh, Stuart Elway, pollster from Elway Research. And uh, you just released a poll. Most people are in favor of Bruce Harrell, it appears, or at least a plurality of people are in favor of Bruce Harrell for mayor. The rest, they really haven't decided. We did four races, mayor, the two city council races, and the city attorney. And uh, at least a third of the voters were undecided in each of those, and in a couple of them, it was half. So, you know, this is the traditional start of, of election season, uh, get through Labor Day. And so I think people are working their way through the ballot. There are only 16% of our, our voters were undecided on all four of those but only 26% had decided on all four. So I think, you know, well, the campaign still needs to be run. And this doesn't, this is not unexpected there, isn't it, Stuart? Because we're so early in the race. We're early in the race. And in these, uh, several of these races, there are a lot of newcomers, a lot of uh, people who haven't run citywide before and and voters just don't, uh, are familiar with them. So they're going to take some time and and, uh, listen to campaigns and read their voters pamphlet and make a decision. Well, I think one thing that the voters have decided on is what this election is going to be about. And clearly that is homelessness. Clearly that is homelessness. We asked several questions. We asked uh, uh, what issue is most important to you as you're making your voting decisions. We asked what should the mayor do, the new mayor do, if if he or she could only do one thing. There are a couple other places where we ask issue questions, and in every one, homelessness just dominated the list. Um, eight out of ten people uh, say homelessness is the issue. The the, the solution is not as clear, um, but uh, the problem is certainly the one that people want to talk about. There are others as well, but the, the, and they're kind of related. But homelessness was always the top, no matter how we asked the question. You know, I found it interesting that that 38% prefer to divest the police budget and invest in programs that address the root problems of crime. And that's what the city council and the mayor have been talking about for quite a while, but it's going to take a, it's going to take a while for all those programs to get up and running. Right. Um, is that, did that surprise you at that number? At 38%? Well, you know, you hear, you hear so much and you read the comments and, and, and all of that sort of thing. And there's, there's so much sort of street chatter about, you know, clearing the encampments, uh, getting, getting people out of the tents. Um, and, and that makes a lot of news, but that was not the favored position. We, we, we really posed it as an either or choice as a false choice, but we wanted to, see what um, people's sort of underlying attitudes were. And um, as you said, 54% said develop permanent housing and mental health services, and 41% chose 
moving the tents and moving the occupants into temporary shelters. Um, and we asked another way too that you know the the uh, compassion Seattle Charter Amendment uh, didn't make the ballot, but we put it on the poll and asked people if it had been on the ballot, would you vote for it? And sixty percent said yes. And and that too uh, prioritizes permanent housing and then and then uh, moving the encampment. So I, I think that's for most people, not everybody, but uh, for a majority, that's the way we want to go. I think people would like that to ha- all to happen a little faster than it has. Diving into a, a little bit more of the numbers, one of the things that I particularly noticed is that when you asked why are you supporting Harrell or why are you supporting Gonzalez in the in the race for mayor? For Harrell, it was clearly homelessness. That was, uh, I mean, 23%, that's a plurality, but the next closest one issue was crime, and that yeah. was at 7%. But if you look over at Gonzalez, it was only 11% saying homelessness was the issue. Clearly, Harrell has an edge in this in this particular uh, part that, of the race. On that issue, yes. And, and the Gonzalez people named uh, sort of her philosophy, uh, her, her being a progressive and, you know, her philosophy and stands on issues and values. That was the number one thing that, that came up for reasons to vote for her. Those, those were close second for Harold as well. And there is a, there is a sense uh, in the poll that there's, a, there's kind of a, it's not a ticket exactly, but the, the, the votes are, are kind of running together. That is, uh, we, we asked, in addition to these four races and the, and the couple, a homeless question, we also asked sort of a, a tough choices question on crime and on, um, as I say, on homelessness, on downtown. Uh, there were four issues that we asked about. So we combined all those so we got eight questions, four, four elections and four issue questions. We combine all that and about uh, 54%, 53% were on the side of changing the direction of City Hall. And, and about 43% were on the, on the side of continuing the same direction. It's not a tsunami, but there's a current <laughs> running for change, and um, uh, Harold and um, uh, Nelson and Wilson and Davison are all running with that tie. Uh, uh, some of them are better known than others, but there's a there's a consistency for those four, and then a consistency for uh, the other four as well. Did, did you ask that question uh, with the city attorney's race because the you know, within the mayor's race, you have two, you know, one former council president, the current right. council president. So they're coming from the council, right? Uh, basically, and then the in the city attorney's race, the the, the views are very different on very the two different. candidates. That's yeah. the starkest choice, uh, I think, and and with two unknown candidates, really, um, citywide. Um, uh, that that was that's the choice where uh, people have. The, the 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 starkest contrast. Did you ask the question? Do people want to see a change at the city attorney's office and feel like it's going in the right direction or wrong direction? No, right we now? we didn't do that, but we did ask uh, the question about um, their their two core positions, 
and that is would you prefer with regard to the with regard to the police department would you be inclined to favor hiring more police officers or taking money out of the police department uh, to give the programs uh, and community organizations it was 54 to 38 in favor of hiring more officers mm. um, and then uh, on crime, are you inclined to make more arrests than prosecutions for shoplifting and other misdemeanors? Or are you in favor of decriminalizing uh, crimes of poverty and addiction like shoplifting and other misdemeanors? There again, 10 point difference with 46% on the side of more arrests and 36% on the side of decriminalizing. Um, so uh, there again, it, it would seem that Davidson has an edge there in terms of sort of the underlying attitudes. But again, these are two candidates that haven't run before. And the, the question is going to be, will Seattle voters elect a Republican? Once they, once they find out Davidson is a Republican, well, how's that going to, how's that going to change things? Or, or will they vote instead for someone who wants to decriminalize um, uh, these issues and and defund the police, which they don't support. So I think neither one of these candidates would probably have been the first choice of most voters. I mean, not that their first choice was in there, but it, it, the, the city attorney's office is going to go in a, in a significantly different direction depending on which of these two candidates prevails. Well, we talk about whether we retain the status quo or we go for change. And I can't help but look back at the 2019 city council elections where you had seven of the city council members that were up for re-election. And everything that we saw looked like the city council was going to shift a little bit towards the moderate end of things, but ultimately it ended up going a little further to the left. Yeah, yeah. How, how can how's this year different? Well, you know, I I think, and many have said this, but there was a, a, a an event right at the end, namely Amazon dropped a million dollars into the campaign uh, on the side of the moderates, and the progressives were able to say we're not going to let Amazon buy this election. I think that was that was one of the biggest you know political blunders we've seen in a long time. Uh, they try they try to bigfoot the the election and it, and it backfired. And up until that time, the moderates were leading in in most of the uh, polling. There wasn't a lot of it, but um, it looked like it was going to be a different outcome right up until that last minute money drop. How much do you expect these numbers to change or shift as we head towards the November general? Well, I think they're going to change quite a bit. Uh, as I say, we've got in that in that attorney uh, city attorney race we were just talking about, fifty four percent of the people are undecided. Uh, so, and these are all likely voters, and these are, these are people who are, are you know probably going to be there in November, and fifty percent in the Mosqueda Wilson race. So, so the numbers are going <laughs> to change um, whether they shift or not. It's a little, uh, you know, that's that's. That'll be the question, of course, we'll all be watching. It's a little different in the uh, mayor's race where uh, Harold has a, a significant lead and fewer undecided. Oh, and I should say that a majority of the undecided voters in all four of these races were on the change side of change direction side of our scale. So um, the question for Gonzalez will be where does she get the votes to, to make up that ground? 
against Harrell. And the question for him is, can he continue to capture these change voters? But, you, you well, mentioned you, that, that he, you know, they're both coming from the council. But he's done a pretty good job of forgetting that he was ever on the city council on his campaign. Well, but and, and, here, and here's the street question, because, you know, in the last 30 years, no council member was ever voted to be mayor right. uh, going back 30 years now. So even though they're both basically their last job that Harold had was on the council, yeah. you, <laughs> does yeah. that break the streak if he, if, yeah. Um, yeah. If he got elected, you know, or do yeah. you give him a pass because he was well, not on the to, council when he ran? You'll have to have an asterisk by the, the record at least. Um, yeah. But, he, you know, he, he wasn't on the council when it seemed to make, in voters' minds, such a hard left turn. So, you know, he does have uh, a little cushion there, but we'll, we'll see. But, yeah, they're both on the council. One of them's going to be mayor. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Stuart Elway, pollster with Elway Research, the Crosscut Elway poll. Thank you so much for your time. Anytime. Still to come, we'll dive more into the race for Seattle mayor and who might be the next police chief when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela, and Matt Markovich joins us, as almost always. And in the last segment, we spoke with Stuart Elway, pollster for the Crosscut Elway poll, talking about the race for Seattle mayor and some of the other hot races on the ballot this fall. And, uh, well, let's focus in a little bit more on the race for Seattle mayor. And Matt, you had a chance to speak with Bruce Harrell at length recently, and uh, there were some big revelations that came out of that interview. Well, the main one that we're t- focusing on this week, and uh, we're going to talk about other ones that he spoke about in the weeks to come, um, was about the chief of police. Mm-hmm. Who would he select as his police chief? It's probably his most important hire, especially since we don't really have one, permanent one. We have an interim police chief. With and Adrian Jenny Durkin D- says she's leaving it to the next mayor. That's right. So the, the, the city ha- will be in limbo for almost eight months since Durkin made that announcement that she wasn't going to pick a chief and allow it to a new mayor to do that next year. So we thought, well, let's just ask the candidates that qu- simple question. Um, we asked that of Bruce Harrell, just qualifier. We also wanted to ask that of uh, Lorena Gonzalez, but she, in our scheduled interview, she canceled that, and then uh, we didn't have an opportunity to ask her, and, and her campaign has not rescheduled that interview. So we asked Bruce Harrell that, and we also know, know that Bruce Harrell is close friends with Carmen Best. Mm-hmm. Former he, police chief. Yeah, he also told us that, that she's advising him on matters, and has been. So there's a connection there. So we so, asked the point blank question. I mean, see, this is leading towards, is Carmen Best coming back Well, here? I mean... Because uh, you're kind of laying the groundwork. Yeah, I think here's a good example of what he said to me. So Carmen and I have had many discussions, and I don't want to, as, as the expression we say is, put her on front street. But I will say that what the city council did do, I thought, was as uh, that was, I thought that was poor form. That this is a woman that was, I think, a phenomenal leader. Could the city as a whole have handled protests better? Absolutely. Were they heavy-handed in many instances? Absolutely. But in Chief Best, you had a person that, uh, as an African-American woman, that had faced so much, I think, unfairness in her life, that understood the plea and demands of community, that also understand the need for effective policing, and I think she's a leader. Now, the poor form that he's actually talking about is how the city council treated Carmen Best in the last days of her uh, tenure. This was at a time when the the height of the protests of summer of 2020, you had 
chop that had just closed down. They finally took over the East Precinct, which had been abandoned for several weeks. And then you have the city council asking for defunding of SBD by 50%. Most of the council members on board for that. And then you had just had the vote by the council to reduce her pay, and it was proposed by 40%. It eventually was reduced, but not by the 40% margin. And then she felt like that was punitive and uh, attacking her. And she basically resigned because she did not want to lay off all the officers that the council wanted her to ask. She said it was just too much. And so that's why she resigned. That's why she publicly said she resigned. And Adrian Diaz took over at that at that moment. Well, she hasn't gone very far. She's been a, been a pundit on cable TV for, right. for quite some time. She's been consulting so, and yeah. she's been doing uh, speaking tours. You know, she's been talking to law enforcement groups around the country uh, as a prominent African-American woman who was also a former police chief of a very large city uh, in Seattle, a very progressive city mm-hmm. that was under a consent decree. So you had all these factors that were involved with her, her tenure at SBD. So, so he clearly, to me, basically said, she got the raw deal. She is a bright person. She, in quoting here, uh, Bruce Harrell called her a phenomenal leader. Um, and so there's every indication without him saying yes or no and giving a very glowing response saying that he's in touch with her. She's advising him. You know, he's a politician. He's not going to say yes or no. Tell me a politician is going to say yes or no to a direct question. <laughs> Certainly uh, not in the height of a campaign. Season. That's right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's politics 101, unfortunately. Nope. But we also asked him, what did he think about Adrian Diaz? He did not have glowing statements about Adrian Diaz. What did he have a problem with the interim chief for? Well, he basically was saying that he's been reading about some disarray in the department. Is basically he has. It's, it was clear to me that he had not had any conversations directly with Adrian Diaz, like he has been having with uh, Carmen Best. But he basically was. Well, and keep in mind, Bruce Harrell's not in a position of power at the moment. He is not a member of the council anymore. Yeah. Well, let's listen to what he had to say briefly. What he said about Adrian Diaz. So, Chief Diaz, again, I'm going to try to lift him up and say um, good things about him. But I will tell you that. There are a lot of decisions that I just read about in the newspaper that I scratch my head on. Um, and I am not seeing the kind of transitional leadership or optimal leadership at the city as a general. And so I'm not going to single out Chief Diaz. The city right now, I think, and it's one reason why I'm running, I think are completely misaligned. And when he talks about transitional leadership, that's because he's the interim police chief. And he talks about optimal leadership. That's where he's referring to how the chief works with Mayor Durkin and the city government and the city council, which is a lot the chief has no control over because Mm -hmm. he's handed this deck of of a city council on a mayor that's outgoing mayor who's basically hasn't done much in the last couple of months. It's a lame duck. Yeah. That's what he's referring to in in those terms there. So not glowing recommendation for Adrian Diaz out of the block, but very glowing for Carmen Best, and you can read between the lines. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but it didn't seem like Adrian Diaz was really all that interested in the permanent job. No, he is interested in the permanent okay. job. Yes, yeah, I stand no, he's, uh, he's made indications that he would like to have that job. I think that's why we do see him quite a bit. I mean, I think we see Adrian Diaz now more than we did 
Carmen Best pre oh, sure. pre chop pre yeah. pre all the protest parts. And you know, perhaps this is my my sort of I, I don't want to use the term media bias, but sort of the news journalist bias in me saying that those of us who who gather the news tend to like people that are a little more accessible. Carmen Best mm-hmm. was anything but accessible when she was the police chief. She was very hard to get a hold of, very hard to get an interview with. Yeah, and keep in mind Carmen Best's job for quite a while was to deal with the media. She mm-hmm. was the media liaison officer. She spoke on behalf of of the Seattle Police Department for quite a long time. So she knows how the media works very very well, probably more than any other chief because she held that position. She knew when she could talk, when it was best for her to talk. She's a smart woman. Now, Adrian Diaz, like you said, is very available to the media. He's been doing community uh, advisory groups. He is visible on social media dealing with community groups, uh, you know, from his office via Zoom. You know, mm-hmm. he does nowadays. You don't have to get out much. Yeah. You can just sit in your office and answer questions from the public. So he's very clearly visible about that and has has a mantra now, and it's a, it's a good one, and, it's a, and it resonates with people that he needs more officers in order to keep the city safe. You know, it's very odd. He says that almost every chance he has. Well, and, and certainly that's going to put him a little bit more in line with Bruce Harrell than Lorena Gonzalez when you're talking about the two differing views of the two people that are, are running for mayor. But with regards to Carmen Best, the sense I got, it, at least from some of the sources I've talked to, is that the rank and file may not have been fully behind her. They liked her but weren't necessarily sold on her ability to lead a department of that size. I have heard that, too. And again, that's just anecdotal. Mm-hmm. There's been no internal survey that I'm aware of that was done by SPOG about this. You can look at exit interviews by officers uh, that have been leaving the department ever since the defunding uh, chants began, you know, basically 18 mm-hmm. months ago. In, in the exit interviews that I've seen, they talk about command staff leadership uh, that, a, a failure of it, but very few have I I've seen in the exit interviews actually name Carmen Best. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an insinuation that command staff includes her um, at the time. Um, but I think uh, a lot of the off a lot of staff see that the council was the main problem. And they felt like the council and the city didn't have the SB Spogs back, uh, uh, police officers back. And I think that. There was a perception by some officers I've talked with that Carmen Best did have their back. You know, he she basically quit by saying, I'm not going to lay off people. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. It's the last straw. And that's why she resigned. There seems to be a bit of a disconnect, though, between the boots on the ground officers and leadership, whether it is with the Seattle Police Department uh, and we've talked about this in the past, the King County Sheriff's Office, because the sheriff's deputies have lost confidence in Mitzi Johanknik. It appears that Dal Constantine has lost confidence in her as the sheriff as well. And we know that it is no longer going to be an elected position and, and she's going to be out of a job here fairly quickly. So is this something that is sort of a unique Seattle phenomenon? Because, as I say, the boots on the ground, the rank and file in law enforcement doesn't seem to have a whole lot of confidence in their leaders. I think that's a universal thing. I don't think that's Seattle. I think if you look at any company, a lot of the rank and file of any company has issues with their managers and the top brass of the company, and that the, the accusation is that they're not in touch with the person that's on the ground. You know, the mm-hmm. uh, 
the warehouse worker versus the person who's sitting in the C office uh, mm-hmm. you know, on the fifth floor. Um, so that's I think that's universal. So you're going to have that everywhere you go, and you're going to have that in the Seattle Police Department too, as well as the King County Sheriff's Department. The difference with Mitzi is that, like you said, that that she you know that I should say the sheriff, Johank, not mm-hmm. Mitzi, but uh, the the sheriff is going to be out lame duck too. You have a lame duck mayor, you have a lame duck sheriff, you have an interim police chief. So there's some vacuums at key leadership positions involving law enforcement right now here in King County in the city of Seattle. And, and turning back to the race for Seattle mayor, because a lot of this came from your interview with Bruce Harrell, Lorena Gonzalez, as you said, just completely backed out. What yeah, went on well, there? We had, the way it worked up, we had been talking to the campaigns to have these hour-long interviews, and, and Bruce Harrell... We did one uh, a, a Friday ago, basically a week ago, mm-hmm. uh, with Bruce, and we were scheduled to do one with on Monday, the following Monday, with Lorena Gonzalez. And then on the, over the weekend, her campaign manager texted me that she couldn't do it. It didn't, but when I asked to reschedule as soon as possible because we were doing a town hall about lawlessness on Como that was being uh, live streamed on Wednesday. We want to do it before then, but we never heard back from the campaign. So we, we've we never had a chance to ask her all these questions. And she has been, I'll put it to say, when you talk about media friendly, she has not been media available for a lot of people, yeah. not just me. Uh, Bruce obviously has, Bruce Harrell has. She did, I do want to say in, in somewhat in her defense, she did give some quotes to about the topic of police chief to some various news organizations. Like in June, she told the Seattle Times, I think the department could benefit from an external candidate. And then in July, she told the Northwest Progressive Institute in an interview, she says, I'm looking for a candidate who is willing to challenge the status quo from within, someone who is not afraid to say no. So she's, she's saying two separate things in two different interviews depending on who she's talking to it sounds like yeah and her talking points on her website which i have to we have to draw from because we haven't been able to interview her makes no mention about the a, a police chief or a replacement or who she would pick did her campaign give you any reason why they canceled no uh, just that there was a problem and uh, i didn't ask and uh, but i have asked to reschedule it twice and I've not heard anything back. Well, we uh, certainly welcome her on this show, as we welcome all candidates. And you would welcome her for an interview Absolutely. as well. But uh, mm-hmm. come on, Matt Markovich, thank you as always. Okay. When we come back, more trouble in Afghanistan and how the Biden administration is responding when the Como Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Greg Hersholt. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is defending the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, telling a House hearing that the prior administration got the ball rolling on the withdrawal. After 20 years, 2,641 American lives lost, 20,000 injuries, it was time to end America's longest war. But Republican Joe Wilson of South Carolina blamed the Biden administration for the deaths of 13 U.S. service members last month in a suicide attack. Your bizarre abandoning of Bagram Airfield led directly to 13 Marines murdered in Kabul. You should resign. ABC White House correspondent Karen Travers is with us this morning. It sounds like it was pretty contentious, Karen. You know, it was, and it's no surprise. It was very partisan. It got a little nasty and ugly. But, you know, for Secretary Blinken, he seemed to stay out of a lot of that mudslinging because he was getting a lot of backup from the Democratic lawmakers on the committee who were going at it with the Republicans. But, you know, Blinken was on the hot seat yesterday. This is the first time he testified before Congress since that uh, very chaotic evacuation from Kabul last month. 
And while we heard Blinken uh, defending the president's decision to pull out of Afghanistan and pushing back strongly on criticism, the Republicans on the committee were saying that the real issue was that chaotic evacuation, the Americans and Afghan allies who did not make it out, and the service members who were killed. As you said, Blinken was pointing the finger back at the Trump administration, saying that they inherited a deadline, because, of course, the Trump administration had that May 1st deadline worked out with the Taliban. But Blinken said we did not inherit a plan. Republicans didn't like hearing that, including one who's been critical of the Trump administration, Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. He said that, yes, the Trump administration failed in the setup. Kinzinger said the Biden administration absolutely failed in the execution of this plan. Karen, the president remains in the West today. What's he doing? Yeah, he's waking up in Southern California after campaigning last night for California's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom. Uh, Of course, that came ahead of today's recall vote, the end of voting there. The president is going to travel to Colorado today, where he'll be talking about his infrastructure proposals and tying that to his broader economic agenda. Look for the president to talk about climate change and how it's necessary to go after this right now and how by doing so instituting his policies it will be good for job creation all right karen thanks very much and we'll be in touch abc news white house correspondent karen travers still to come protecting voting rights a non-starter in congress when the como politicast continues after this welcome back to the como politicast i'm jeff pojala senate democrats have unveiled a paired back elections bill in hopes of kickstarting their stalled push to counteract new laws in republican states that make it far more difficult to cast a ballot but the new compromise legislation doomed to fail in the 50 50 senate joining me now is abc's andy field from washington dc and first off 50-50 in the Senate, you get the vice president that breaks the tie. Why is anything doomed to fail? Because of someone deciding in the Senate back in the, I think it was the 1800s when they first put the filibuster in. It wasn't in the Constitution, but they, they wanted to have this kind of supermajority to make sure that the minority party wasn't always steamrolled. It was rarely used. And originally, when you had a filibuster, it was more like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, where he just stood on the floor and talked himself silly until he ran out of breath and collapsed and they go okay that was a nice performance and then they went and voted anyway well nowadays it's been enshrined that if you don't have the 60 votes which means you need 10 more republicans uh, nothing gets done in the senate it takes a simple majority to get rid of the filibuster there's been a lot of talk of that recently why hasn't it come to fruition whether it be under republicans or under democrats two names joe manchin and Kristen cinema cinema is uh, the senator from Arizona, Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, they are moderate to right-leaning Democrats in states that are very right-leaning and they want to keep their jobs. And so they are resistant to doing this and they're saying, no, we don't want to do this here. And that means that even though the Democrats have a majority in the Senate, they don't really have a majority when it comes to this particular topic. When it comes to this topic, what are Democrats wanting to do? Because we saw what Texas is doing. They're trying to make it very difficult for certain populations to vote. They're cutting back polling hours, eliminating polling locations, eliminating vote by mail in many instances. Well, how are Democrats countering this, and can they do so? They could if every Democrat votes yes. Now, Joe Manchin, again, this guy has more power than the president at this point. He says, yeah, I'll vote for a uh, reform bill, but I want it to be bipartisan. And the, again, the problem is with, with the reform bill is that it doesn't fall under any of these exceptions. So even if all the Democrats say yes, 
they still need 10 Republicans to vote yes as well. We saw this happen in the in the physical infrastructure bill, but they got more than enough Republicans to vote for this, and in large part because, A, they really didn't raise any taxes, and that's kryptonite for most Republicans in Congress to raise any tax on anything. Uh, and so it's basically going to add another $500 billion to the, to the federal debt. But, you know, then we hear all, all of the... Uh, the grandiose statements were, well, it'll pay for itself and increase productivity and more taxes and other things down the line. But uh, history has shown us that rarely, if ever, does that thing. So that's why this thing is, as you mentioned at the beginning of this, that the election bill that's going through the House is likely doomed in the Senate unless they can get 10 Republicans. Now, what it would do would be establish rules for running elections limit partisanship in drawing congressional districts, so-called gerrymandering, and force anonymous donors who spend big to influence elections to disclose who they are. It's not just Republicans, but Democrats are very happy to have these anonymous donors because it kind of gets gets rid of the bad publicity of, gee, big oil gave me lots of money for something. Uh, it also includes a number of changes that West Virginia Joe Manchin wanted, uh, which would include but not prohibit state voter ID requirements, but would allow them in some cases. It would also eliminate a proposed overhaul of the Federal Election Commission, which is uh, supposed to alleviate partisan gridlock at the election watchdog agency. So it, it's really kind of a really watered down version of what some of the original voting rights laws are. And even if it passed, I'm not sure that it would get rid of some of the problems that we see cropping up in Texas and other uh, Republican-led states that are really trying to limit voter participation uh, that more often than not affects minorities and other folks who tend to vote Democrat instead of Republican. So how far can some of these states go? Because we know states are the ones that administer elections. We don't have a federal central place where you vote that would be too vulnerable to attack so what can they do and in 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 response doesn't seem like democrats can do anything to stop them other than elect democratic-led legislatures in those states you're right not much they can do but i some of the stuff is being challenged in courts uh, by the federal government and by outside groups so the answer to the question, how far can Republican legislatures go in clamping down on uh, voting rights or, as they like to call it, securing the election uh, and making sure there's no fraud, despite the fact that election after election shows almost imperceptible levels of fraud in any cases. Uh, the only thing, as far as they can go, is as far as the courts will let them. And we're going to see these cases work through the courts. But this is another one of those to quote a cliche, time is of the essence because we're going into the 2022 elections where some of the stuff may not be resolved in the courts by the time people start voting. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come. A new bridge gets a new name. I'm Brian Calvert, and this one comes right out of the fictional town of Springfield. When the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally, this week on the Como Politicast, city officials have dedicated the region's newest pedestrian bridge. And as Como's Brian Calvert reports, its name pays tribute to a native son. The walking and biking bridge spans Interstate 405 through downtown Portland, right about Flanders Street making the name of the bridge obvious to some city officials. Your prayers have been flanchered. 
It's been named the Ned Flanders Crossing. Hi, <laughs> diddly ho! The span allows those in the south part of downtown Portland to easily say, Hello, neighborino to the north! Giving pedestrians a shortcut, if you will. It allows for maximum mobility. The new bridge comes complete with a plaque reading, Ned Flanders Crossing. Hi, diddly ho, neighborinos! He actually wrote diddly! Why name the new bridge after this particular cartoon character? Oopsie daisy! Well, it is at Flanders Street, which served as the inspiration for Ned Flanders' name. You see, Simpsons creator Matt Groening grew up in Portland. It apparently just seemed fitting that the Flanders Street crossing be named after Ned. Oh, I sure can't wait to help out all those needy people. Other Portland names featured in television's longest-running animated series, Montgomery Burns, was named after Montgomery Park and Burnside Street. Oakley dokley doo The Reverend, named after Lovejoy Street. The Mayor, named after Quinby Street. And the infamous Terwilliger Curves on Interstate 5 served as the inspiration for Sideshow Bob, Terwilliger. You have a nice day now. Sure, the City of Roses has been known for a little upheaval as of late, and the new bridge may not instill a renewed sense of safety and security. That's okay by me. But it's sure to be seen as a refreshing break from reality for many Portlanders. Hens love roosters, geese love ganders, everyone else loves Ned Flanders. Brian Calvert, Como News. And that'll do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. For more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and many, many more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelet. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.